Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. I'm really pleased to be joined by the Genesis Future Directors Award winner, Debbie Hannan, uh, who's here at The Young Vic at the moment. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us uh, this afternoon. Thank you. Pleasure. When people grow up and when they're at school, I suppose they're quite interested in becoming actors and being on the front of the stage. But that wasn't your journey, was it? How, where did it start for you to, that you decided that actually it was this directing lark which appealed to you most? I think being an incredibly bossy child with a large imagination, probably. Um, I My primary memories of primary school are um, getting my massive group of female friends and like playing sort of week-long games where we all had characters, <laughs> um, which only on reflection uh, I realised is a form of directing. I suppose I didn't really know what directing was until I got to school and I had an amazing drama teacher and we, you know, learned a, a lot about acting, etc. But then when it got to about fifth or sixth year, which I don't know what that is in the English system, about 15, 16 years mm, old. Year 10, yeah. something like that. Um, you, she was kind of like, I think you should try writing and directing. And I I have never got a buzz out of acting the way that the my sort of actor friends truly do. I've got a buzz out of actually being an audience member of all things and creating a, a story and a picture from the outside that excites me and says something about life that I recognise and I'm thrilled by or even progresses my thought about life. So actually being in control of a bigger picture, even in a sort of a teenage situation where I wrote a terrible play that was very melodramatic, was still more appealing to me and more exciting. So really it was a teacher, mm. you know, and I think we I don't think I've heard many like theatre people's stories where they're like it was my teacher at a state school that got me into theatre, you know, because my family weren't particularly into it. Um, but she's been the biggest influence. And actually, if you go to Scotland, she's had such a ripple effect on the theatre scene, that teacher, Mrs Patterson, that there's now multiple people working in theatre in Scotland who stem from that one woman. And where was this in Scotland? Holyrood High School in okay. Edinburgh. In Edinburgh. Yeah. So you must have gone to the Edinburgh Fringe once or twice. Yeah, so Edinburgh's actually, it's a be- beautiful city and a lovely place to grow up. I grew up in a slightly crappy suburb of it. <laughs> um, although I was, you know, it was a bit of a rubbish area, but it was next to a castle, which is very classically Scotland. <laughs> um, but I was living for that one month of a year when all of the rest of the world came to Edinburgh. And, you know, it is a tradition that the locals hate it, and that is true, but that was not true for me. I as oh, I remember as a teenager, like, wandering the streets, just really excited by basically most of London having moved there for a month. And um, I, I sort of... That was my interaction with theatre, really, was, like, theatre in pubs and cupboards and, like, weird shows or... You know, my mum used to take me to magic shows when I was a kid at the Edinburgh Fringe. That was my introduction. It was very, like, a popular form mm. and populist theatre and sort of um, not necessarily always narrative, more closer to cabaret was my way in. So do you think you would have had that um, influence? Do you think you would have had that interest in, in sort of pursuing directing if you hadn't grown up with the Edinburgh Fringe Festival on your doorstep every August? I know. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I was, we, uh, my family are quite culture vultures, but um, like popular culture vultures, like movies lots of books and reading lots of uh cultural interest i think i always would have loved stories and creating worlds and fictions but i think what i linked theater to was like the absolute overwhelming buzz of the festival so no i probably wouldn't have pursued it quite so hard and also community because i went to uni in edinburgh as well and like the one of the best experiences of my life is the first show ever directed which was nights at the circus 
and it was with like this huge gang of phenomenal people in a in a really hippie circus space in Edinburgh and it was the most luxurious fringe experience because I was living at home <laughs> so it was absolutely fine and so I think the the proximity of all the excitement and and the way that Edinburgh is like the most intense version of the whole industry for a month meant that the bug kind of got you extra hard I guess and so then you went to the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, mm-hmm. and I suppose you was, must have been at a slight advantage having experienced the Edinburgh Fringe uh, so often in terms of knowing that you need to pack everything up in, the, in a suitcase and, you know, cart it around <laughs> with you and all the rest of it like that. How, what was your time like at the, at the Conservatoire? Brilliant, actually. I mean, I so I went to uni in Edinburgh, and then I managed to, at the end of the degree, got a grant from the English Lit Department and put on this huge, now when I look back, quite mad um, ambitious, devised version of the grim fairy tales that was in the, an underground basement of a Georgian hall and it had like 50 actors, it was really mad. Um, and from that I then applied to the conservatory and got a scholarship and I applied to all this funding and managed to get it to pay my way through it because I had no money whatsoever. Um, so it's sort of a feat, a miracle, a feat of hard work and miracles that got me there. And once I was there, I absolutely loved it. I was so green. I didn't know anything about the industry. I just knew I wanted to make stuff. And it introduced me both to kind of artistic practice. It's much closer to like an MFA where they're trying to get you to find your style and um, how the industry works, the actual logistics of putting on a show. And it's a very... Um, it's a very generous and a very mixed course. You do a month at the Globe, but you also develop a new play. And I loved developing a new play. And I worked with a playwright called Pamela Carter, who's exceptional and really established at that point. And it's quite... And now looking back, I think it's kind of a crazy thing to put this established playwright with this incredibly young director who's <laughs> never done it before. But it was a brilliant baptism of fire. And we developed this play called Liberty, Equality, Fraternity about a, a politician and a sex scandal with seven American cast members. <laughs> Um, which was a crazy set of circumstances. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I loved it. It's, uh, I know that there's, there's lots of decision-making around whether you do do an MA in directing, like can you be taught it or anything. That course isn't particularly trying to teach you how to direct. It's trying to let you discover how you think your style, like how you want to direct. So do you think you discovered your style on that course? Oh, uh, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I definitely got closer and I think you do it every time you direct and it's you know it's funny isn't it when you have your own conception of your own style a style is almost too limiting and dangerous a word in a way I think maybe more what interests you is more important and to go towards that as hard as possible and I realized what I was interested in which was new work and new plays and things that talk about very very contemporary issues and I guess lots of themes that uh, come up a lot in my work which is like gender or and cruelty that comes up quite a lot um but it's more that it's more like we're, oh this this like speaks to me i've got to go towards that it's interesting that you talk about your interest in new work because i noticed mm. you, in your previous work that you've got all this great uh backlog of um back catalog of uh, of new work and new writing mm. but also some classics in there as well as things mm. like a doll's house yeah what, what's the similarities or differences when you're directing a piece of new work compared to a classic text that everybody knows that's a really good question I think probably very little. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> uh, because I think that you have to... I mean, the thing with the classic is you... The thing you get with new work... I'll oh, start again. The thing you get with the new work is that you get the relevance uh, almost for free, usually, because if it's set now and it's usually about a contemporary issue, 
it is speaking to something of the now. Um, and the classical play, it, that is less clear from the outset, I guess. But you still have to interrogate that and you still have to draw that thread out of it um, and and find the, why you know, why this thing now, like theatre is of its moment. So the, the class, that's the main difference. It's like the rooted why. And then I, I, whenever I start a process, I like to have a series of guiding principles that lead me through it that are to do with the first instincts of why I thought it was exciting. So, for instance, I did Notes from the Underground in Dostoevsky, and I remember finding that central character and his bitterness really fascinating and how I, I sort of made a link between his um, internalised world and his bitterness to, like, online trolls now. And, how, you know, and that was the thing that drew me in and made me want to do an updated version of this classic but in a way, that's the same question as with a new play. Like, why is it relevant and how are you going to draw that out for an audience? And the work that you make, which uh, is political, it's very political, isn't it? Mm. It's about power. It's, yeah. it, it, it's about gender. Um, do, is there a risk that if you're responding to the politics of the day, that perhaps that might sometimes date a piece of work? And mm. do you think it's better for a director to be... Uh, reactive to the world around them or sort of proactive to the world around them. Mm. What do you mean reactive and proactive? So, for instance, if you're reacting to um, a new story or or, a, mm. or the, the zeitgeist of the time in terms of gender or power mm. or or another political issue of the day, mm. um, rather than... Um, pushing ahead. Pushing ahead. I think proactive is more interesting. I mean, reactive can... It's like the question of that is like, what is the function of theatre then, isn't it? And actually... It's both and probably more of than those two things. I've seen plays that are reactive and they have done their they've had their moment and they've spoken in that moment and they've been important and relevant and helpful and and you know caused empathy and maybe even change right in that in that beat that they were alive for and that's perfectly valid and maybe in 20 years it'll be valid again because we seem to live in endless cyclical times. Um, but I think, Proactive is probably more interesting to me because the things that I like to work on tend to create imaginative space to think about better futures. Or like Taylor Max says, dream the culture forward. Mm. And I always think that's such a good phrase. And and often I, I think plays that are um, a bit misunderstood when they first come out have often gone one step beyond where we generally are at with the cultural consciousness. So I think new work that does that is exceptional and definitely of of interest. But actually, theatre has a hell of a lot of functions and I don't disagree with like theatre's reaction or theatre's entertainment necessarily, mm. um, but proactive is probably my top choice. It's interesting that you said about theatre's entertainment because you you mentioned your childhood earlier and how your <laughs> your family were popular culture vultures. It must tire you, I guess, when this kind of this snobby attitude towards theatre as as a form of entertainment rather than always trying to push or explore or, or question. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I think it's a it's a real benefit coming from Scotland in that respect because the theatre, the form of theatre there is much more comfortably across those things. Like the the political and the popular are in, really intrinsically linked. There, you know, there is a working class form there, um, and it that seeped into the main buildings as well as the fringes, and it's and it's part of the almost the the dialectic of the form there. I think. Um, I think it's about for me I've always been interested in like if if the if your show is like reaching a hand out to an audience you need to actually put the hand out you don't just want to shove them away and I think that's to do with looking at what the what the form forms of entertainment look like and do 
And it's not that they're apolitical. Spectacle is not apolitical. If you're going to utilise spectacle, you've got to know what you're doing with it. But also, it doesn't necessarily mean it's all evil <laughs> or capitalist mm. sort of um, hollowness. Mm. Um, you can utilise spectacle to bring someone in to having a, a new thought about a person they thought they'd never relate to. So, uh, yeah, so I guess I've gone around in a circle there, haven't I? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, some of the most... Um, affecting uh, mm. theatre that I've ever seen has been the Christmas Panto at the yeah. Hackney Empire. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, so, uh, exactly. It, the, you know, um, popular forms of culture by no means kind yeah. of and I think like less a, important, are they? I think like Fun Home, mm. you know, is a popular um, form that's that's doing uh, work, you know, work with an audience that necessarily you wouldn't assume a musical would do, you know, unless you watch a lot of musicals because actually do it quite a lot. Um, or like Mission Drift by The Team, which is on quite a few years ago now it had elements of uh, showgirl and dance in it and uh, stand up almost at certain points and all of those things combined to be like to you know ask a greater question about American capitalism so I think it's about taking the form of entertainment and and yes yeah, n- none of it's worthless mm. all of it can talk to an audience it's just knowing what you want to achieve and, and Debbie, you sound to me like uh, a proud Scottish woman. <laughs> Is that yeah. true? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why did you decide to um, come to, to London? London? Controversial. No. Um, <laughs> I, uh, well, I, I was really inspired by National Theatre Scotland. I, you can't really overstate the impact of that company in the country and how it talked to a whole nation in and a whole sort of range of, range of ages and genders and backgrounds um and it had huge productions and small traveling ones and and it really I think it started when I was 18 like it was a really formative moment that that burst into life and I found that incredibly inspiring um and I ended up my first professional job was assisting Vicky Featherston and John Tiffany there um and I yeah just was completely thrilled by that and I and I always was really excited by the royal court from afar I think this is probably a lot of people's stories that they go and look for plays and they're all royal court plays and they sort of you know they read Sarah Kane from somewhere that isn't London and they're like ah you know take me there where things explode and sunflowers come through the floor you know and I I had that experience and I just thought that you know the court seemed to be like this beating heart of like the thing we're talking about the proactive play that's trying to imagine the future and trying to push us somewhere a bit more difficult and a bit more charged. And I kept applying to be trainee there. And then I got the job. Because I could never have moved to London sort of on a speculative basis. I really needed a, a gig to take me there. And I got a job as trainee director and came down. And it was incredible. It was a, the learning experience of a lifetime. It completely made me as a director. Um, and you worked on some pretty major yeah. shows while you were at the Royal Court, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, you? definitely. Birdland, Internet Serious Business... Mistress Contract. The Nether. The Nether, mm. How to Hold Your Breath, which I abs- I think is exact example of that proactive play. Talked about the refugee crisis, just a beat before it happened. And it didn't sit, you know, comfortably with audiences in a really great way because of that. Um, yeah. Was, this must have been quite a learning curve as well for you during your time at the Royal Court. Huge. And how to work with a writer and how to draw the best out of a play and how to develop a play towards a writer's vision that you can then share with them and... and make it it's you know it's it's the first time it's gonna be in front of an audience and I think that it's I remember the day that I said to John I think being like um people talk about serving the play 
a lot and and how oddly submissive that power dynamic is but it's not really that at all it's you need to have a bold vision that aligns with the play to serve up to an audience at its best for that first time so I learned a lot and just about development dramaturgy how you run a building how you run a building as a community that has a purpose and moves forward together it's huge. You've sort of already answered this, and I don't know if this annoys the Royal Court or not, but they're, they're, <laughs> hopefully not. Uh, they are known as a writer's theatre, aren't they? Just yeah. as the Young Vic is known as a director's theatre. For sure, yeah. So you being a director in a writer's theatre, yeah, yeah. how did you sort of manage your relationship or the relationship of the directors uh, with, mm. with the writers? It depends on every writer. It's completely different. And it depends on what stage their play is at. You're, I mean, you're incredibly involved as the director because you're you are the the dramaturgical you know central centrifugal force of making the production happen <laughs> so you the that relationship is absolutely vital and gaining trust and understanding what they're aiming for but it, you can't talk about a sort of singular version of it they're, they're all completely different, completely dependent on each writer. That's a non-answer. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> is it annoying for me to ask you what your favourite production was at the Royal Court, or is that uh, top what secret? What I worked yes. on? Wow, it's not annoying. It's quite hard to answer. Probably, um, ooh, I loved the internet serious business really profoundly. And I learned so much working on it with Tim and Hamish, but also how to hold your breath, I think. I think those two together and working with Zinni and Vicky. Uh, but also I did a project where um, I, on my own, I'm just be really selfish in this answer, where I went and worked with Mulberry School in Tower Hamlets for a year with this group of um, alumni who are quite young, Muslim, Bangladeshi, feminist women, working class women, who should definitely rule the world. They are incredible. And we <laughs> worked for a whole year to write a collaborative play together. And I'd go there once a week and we'd work with them. And I just absolutely loved it. Well, you've mentioned working class a couple of times Mm. in this interview. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you look at um, campaigns or movements in theatre at the moment, there's a lot about um, representation in terms of um, ethnic diversity through the Mm. Act for Change project or um, uh, equality for women uh, in in theatre and a lot of um, female directors making this point. Often working class issues are kind of not mentioned Mm. when we're talking about the wider representation and inclusion in theatre. Does does that frustrate you as somebody who is working class? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I only only recently began to stating that even because I think if you're if you're um if you're really working class you're usually spending most of your time trying to cover up (laughs) or you're trying to like assimilate um but recently I've embraced it a bit more yeah I think I think it's like that it's almost that the intersectional line that draws through all those other things is class isn't it and it connects all those other things together in a way that's um almost so complicated that you can't pick it apart to make a scheme for it and and it's it's so hard to judge and it's so hard to self-ident to know if self-identifying is the right way to label it because it's a mixture of culture and finances and your parents' culture and finances, maybe even your grandparents and how they differ from your own. So I understand why there's not schemes because the complexity of it is, it's like society, you know, like it's a huge thing about the fundamental building blocks of how we arrange ourselves. Saying that, I think the more that theatres try and at least acknowledge the the sort of huge problem of class um in terms of the artists that they have and who they employ uh the better i think if it's on the table in the way that now the other things you mentioned have where at least some theaters are at at least conscious of those headlines 
that too could be another thing they're conscious of because actually we're still the buildings most buildings are I was about to really say something harsh probably shouldn't I was <laughs> go like, on I was like I'm gonna say most buildings are quite shit at dealing with it in the sense of like the assumptions around money and the assumptions around um what's culturally valid and what isn't um not any specific building I, I have to say that I think the court's actually really good at it um but I think it's a, it's a general thing. It's still an industry-wide issue, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. And and I think there's so much about the working class experience that like, it's even down to the formal thing of it. And that phrase I often hear where it's like, well, if you work in theatre, you're middle class. Mm. And I'm like, oh, brilliant. You've just erased a whole cultural mm. background of somebody by declaring that if they've crossed the picket line, they're now no longer who they are. And what does that mean? That the form itself won't allow the working class story to be told? And if there isn't working class forms in theatre yet, shouldn't you be trying to enable enable them rather than just delete them from the narrative? But maybe that's going to be a really fucking exciting, new, innovative arena if people just take the steps to realise it, the same way a lot of those other intersections that you mentioned earlier have led to really thrilling bits of work that have like opened up our ideas of humanity maybe this too could be another thing if we put a bit of time and thought into it and when did you as an artist as a director um realize your working class uh identity in relation to the industry was it the edinburgh fringe every august was it the royal conservatoire of scotland was it coming to london when did you see and think hang on a second i'm different (laughs) from most of these people edinburgh uni 100 percent um which is quite um uh, a class divided university dare I say it might be different now I went there a long time ago uh, but the, uh, the particularly the theatre society at that time my accent stood out in my L, even though it was in Edinburgh um, and even like your education you know the classical references that I didn't have were different and I ended up joining this theatre group that was separate from the main one that had a building and it was literally sort of a group of people from all over Europe and we only did really weird European plays and site-specific stuff. So it suited me much more. But it was like these sort of dropouts from who didn't quite fit into all their power structures in a way. And I think there I became incredibly conscious and very, very class conscious because I was in this weird limbo as in my own hometown, still living at home, which firstly made me weird at that university because I didn't own a flat, you know, (laughs) that had been given to me. Um... But I was I was still there, but I was still really sort of different and really clearly in a place in the hierarchy. You know, there's a hierarchy of which private school you'd went to, never mind me actually not even having went to one. Um, and that showed up in the sort of theatre groups and how they worked at that point. And how far, I didn't realise how far ahead other people were. Like, people went to youth theatre from the age of five because their mum's sister's a playwright, stuff like that, where I was like, oh, okay, I'm just finding out directing now at the age of 19 or 20 at uni. Even that's still early, I think, for some people. Um, so I suppose it was those things. And then it's just to do with how much you have to, like, scrap. You have to graft for it. So when I had my first assisting job, I was working in a cinema at night, every single night, and getting up at, like, 6 a.m. to then do the work for the job. And that takes its toll and then you have to do that constantly and other people are not having to do that. And I think the reality, that's a simple thing the industry can do is acknowledge the realities of people are trying to support themselves in other ways. And did that mobilise you and anger you into creating work which was perhaps more political than your um, peers were making? Because, you know, you were coming from a place mm. of of difference to them and you must have gone, 
well, this is me assuming, you must have gone, well, hang on a second, I'm going to <laughs> prove to you that my class has got nothing to do with the work, uh, with the quality of the work that I make, but not, and also that uh, this industry has to open its doors and provide spaces for people like me. Mm, it was, yeah, it was, it was less oppositional. It was more like this is gonna, this is gonna affect the quality of my work, <laughs> but as in, it's gonna affect literally the qualities of it, like the type and the art of it, and I think. Um, it took me a while to realise to have confidence and resilience in the way that you're talking about um, to be like this is me and this is what the work is and this is the um, forms and imagery it'll hold it'll come from that background and that is valid Um, I've gone off track what did you say? About um, about empowering you empowering you to um, make work. The, you know what the honest answer is: it, this the system is not set up to empower you when you're different. And I think if I gave like a quick answer to that narrative of being like, yeah, I was totally empowered and raged against the machine, that wouldn't be true. I think it's set up to like, um, whatever the verb version of attrition is, like wear you down, mm. bit by bit. And actually, the the, the empowering bit I think comes later. Um, and it's a, it's still a slog, I think, because actually a hell of a lot is set against you. Um, I think empowerment actually comes from finding others who can also reflect that experience I and can also um, sort of make you feel like you're part of a thing and, and you're heard and you're not this, the only person there. So I find sort of power, empowerment, I guess, in community and in, yeah... That's quite sorry. That's really no. That's no, not at all, Debbie. Because when you were giving that answer, the only thing that was going through my mind is that's exactly the same answer that Roy Alexander Wise gave me when discussing being a director of color. And and, uh, everyone loves Roy. Everyone loves Roy. uh, And uh, and his his experiences with with that in the face of, you know, a vastly majority of white uh, directors as his peers. Yeah, totally. you do have to be spark. You have to be like Sparky, I mm-hmm. guess, is the thing. You have to, you have to work a bit harder, and you have to fake it a bit more, and you have to, you know, you have to be double the confidence in in a room, um, because you, what you what you get, you know, what you don't get given for free is the assumption that your voice and what you've got to say is important. So you have to find that and stand on it yourself. And does your working class identity ever sort of um, coincide with your with you being a female director, with you being mm. a woman, and again the the struggles associated with that, mm. um, and and the, the the situation that we're still in of women directors, unfortunately, still having to prove their worth a, a, against a, a industry which is vastly male. Yeah, I mean, definitely, all those things intersect, don't they? I think, I the biggest thing I see with um female directors, and I expect class plays into this as well. Um, in the sense of like people have have an unconscious bias towards what they trust but it's about trust and I see my female peers having to work a bit harder and myself to just prove that they are trustable and that they are okay at their job and I see my male peers get a little bit more of that for free and then that sort of wedge starts and then like five years down the line they're much further apart than they really should be. It's just like politics. It's just like banking. Yeah. It's just like everything, isn't exactly. it? You know, the power of being a mediocre man is incredible. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness for me. <laughs> <laughs> if we could all just be have the comfort and entitlement of a mediocre man, that would be great. Although I don't think you're mediocre. It's man. got me very far. That's <laughs> all um, Debbie, we've been speaking for about twenty-five minutes, and I've not yet said to you. Yeah. 
congratulations. Thank congratulations you. on it. winning the Genesis Future Directors Award and congratulations on Things of Dry Hours, which is on at the Young Vic right now. Um, tell me about the Genesis Future Directors Award and what that's kind of meant to you. Oh, it's huge because I, I mean, I've always wanted to work at the Young Vic and I always find it an incredibly exciting building. And, the, it, you know, the work I saw in London where I was like, oh, this has opened up a new idea of directing for me. Like, th- this is a new way of interpreting a play was often at the Young Vic. And so it meant a lot to me. Um, and I've tried multiple years to do Genesis and JMK, which is a separate thing, but, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've applied a, quite a few times to both of those. And so this time to actually get through and have... Um, Kwame and Sue and the rest of the team be interested in working with me was really really thrilling and just to you know get a chance to direct a huge challenge of a play like I picked a very challenging play definitely should have picked an easy play (laughs) um but you know I was like hell for leather if I'm going to do this I want to pick the the hardest of the bunch and I want to really really challenge myself and my assumptions about what I can do so that's what you chose you chose Things of Dry Hours Mm -hmm. by Naomi Wallace Uh, what and so is that what attracted you to the play then that it is so kind of difficult it's such a meaty play to yeah and it and it, it threw off every expectation that you it set up every power expectation that you think it's going to play out or statement it's going to make about race class power gender it, it upends it a bit and it sends it somewhere darker and stranger and more complex and nuanced which i think is closer to our actual experience of reality even though it's quite a heightened play um and I, th- I think that I was attracted to it because of what it said about humanity or the question it was asking about human nature and because it's it's really um, like poetic and yet rooted and yet dense and yet very light. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of really paradoxical mm-hmm. unions of things. Um, and it, And it's essentially about what we do to others in an attempt to change them. And I think that that is like a core everything I'm interested in. You mentioned race there. I mm. saw the play last night, and congratulations, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it is a lot about race, isn't it? Mm. Because for people that don't know the play, it's uh, about a black man and his uh, daughter in 1930s Alabama who take in a white man who's basically seeking refuge, isn't he? Mm. Seeking sanctuary from, from the law. And I was curious about you being a, a white director, directing a play which is so much about um, race. I was really conscious of that when I first read it, and questioned it and interrogated it really deeply and I'm really I'm really I'm in a lot of dialogues with other makers and friends about who has the right to tell what story and what that means and what that means right now versus what it could mean in the future and what we're trying to move our industry towards so I, I feel you know you've got to live by your sword you've got to have those values and got to live by them so when I read this play I was like okay you know I've got to think deeply about this and I've got to be sure about it and I even I was working in Mexico on a play and I even phoned Guame from Mexico to be like I want to talk about this so we know that what we're doing is the right thing and we're moving forward on the play together with that vision and I think I think what it came down to was that the the core values of the play are something I deeply share and my and the questions it's asking about humanity are something I'm I'm with alongside and I think it I it covers so many different areas of human existence and and it was so fully and and race is so a part of it along with all those other ones it would be madness to like run away from that one area in a way it is it's it is built into the experience that it's trying to unpick is that right (laughs) i'm not sure that's correct i'm trying to think what the i guess the thing i decided was that 
this is this story is such a story about class and power across so many intersections and that I'm so interested in those things that I thought I could I would and I would work so hard with this cast to to realize all the elements that it's talking about fully that I could then go towards that in the play and I think there's also a thing about authorship in the room and I'm, I'm really interested in that of like I can't claim the full authorship of this piece you know as the director of it and to me to say well I've smothered it in my whiteness you know would be completely um absolutely wrong to the writer the the um the actors in the room who bring their experience um of being black and how that you know what that means for them and how that plays out and and to you know Robin D.G. Kelly who's the historian who wrote the book that the play is based on who writes incredible books about black radical political movements his authorship is part of that too and as long as I excavated and went in deep to that and as long as I reached out to those actors and put their experience first and listened to it and didn't assert my experience over it then I thought I can find a truth in what that experience is in this setup. And despite it being written set in 1930s Alabama Mm. it's very sadly still very topical. Very prescient yeah I mean it's topical in many ways it's topical because its essential question is can you change human nature and it has a character who's trying to see if you can change the nature of whiteness and can you can can he make whiteness anything other than the destructive force that it is and there's a glimmer of possibility so he runs towards it and that's the motor of the play really and it, you know and it deals with topics like the working class white rage it goes there and that's real that Absolutely, frustration yeah. we're seeing it we live brexit mm. right now like and trump and trump and and actually is that some kind of fundamental bedrock in the american construction of its you know of that nation Pro- quite probably this family are a generation after slavery it's still in the it's in the air it's in jim crow era it's in a time where there was mass rape of black women by white men and not a single conviction and that was like, a, you know, two minutes ago in human history terms. It's just literally just round the corner. We've just stepped round from it. So in a way, it's like you can't, you, you, we can't look at the present moment because we're in it. But if we look at that moment and we can connect it up to how we've got to where we are now and examine how those power structures are still seeped into how we think, then we might be able to be proactive and dream the culture forward and imagine another way. Or at least think about if we can shift human nature to somewhere slightly different and better. Do you know what, Debbie? I don't want to ask you another question because that was such an eloquent and powerful and fascinating uh, response to my question. So all I will say is it's so disappointing that Things of Dry House has got a limited run because people deserve to see it. It's a really atmospheric and really interesting piece of theatre. Congratulations. And thank you so much for chatting to me this afternoon. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes.